This show was recorded last Tuesday, February 15th, in front of a live studio audience. Ben Allison performed this live, too. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media, live from the Jerome L. Green Space. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Brooke? Yes, Bob. I just (laughs) begin (laughs) our very first live broadcast of On the Media to say that the fate of mankind hangs in the balance. Tonight, we intend to resolve the question, and yes, it is a big one. Will the Internet deliver us? or destroy us. (laughs) We're starting with, well, you. How is the internet changing you on a personal level? Is it making you better, smarter, less isolated? I think that it does. And I'll be making my case, the correct case, (laughs) that we are being just a little bit decivilized, devolving slightly into sad, evil trolls lurking in the shadows, saying horrible things about one another, stealing content, and shrinking our attention spans like a sweatshirt in a hot dryer. Right now, I'll argue we're living through an internet utopia. In the next part of the show, Bob will be the utopian. (laughs) As if the onset of digital barbarism were really in doubt. Have, Have you ever heard of the site 4chan? Oh, no. People do the most reprehensible things because the internet makes them think that other people's feelings are just less real. There's actually a name for that. It's called online disinhibition effect. So that's where Mattathias Schwartz, Schwartz came comes in. in. Yeah, yeah, he spent a whole lot of time with 4chan fans. And he witnessed uh, in his reporting some extreme cases of online disinhibition effect. I wrote about a young man by the name of Mitchell Henderson. He was, I think, 12 or 13. He shot himself in the head with a rifle and then inexplicably became this phenomenon. They made up this rumor that he had killed himself because someone had taken his iPod. People prank called his house. Then they made little images with bullet holes in his head and broken iPods on the floor. Someone posted a dramatic reenactment to YouTube where Mitchell lost his iPod and then went and killed himself. The further and further away it got from the actual suicide, the more of them just start to find it incredibly funny. They lost sight of the underlying tragedy, a real-life boy taking his own real life. Bob, I agree, it's horrible. But just because people act like a bunch of monsters on a message board doesn't mean that it's the Internet that's dehumanizing us. It just enables us to be more of who we are anytime, anywhere, by enabling us to connect. I give you Exhibit A, J.P. Newfeld. Newfeld stopped what might have been a devastating attack on a school half a world away. I saw a weirdly titled thread started by a user who I had noticed before, Sir Tom 93 It was titled, This Is It. And I saw the message saying, Today at 11.30 GMT, I will attack my school with arson and other forms of violence. Uh, those bastards will pay. He called the cops. I said, hi, I'm a guy from Canada, and uh, I saw a person online saying that they're trying to burn down their school in a few hours. 
I got right through to the emergency dispatcher. I imagine it was probably his weirdest call that day, but he took it very well. Didn't ask if it was a hoax or not, just took down all the information I could give him. I realized there was a four-hour time difference, so what was 6.40 my time was 10.40 his time, meaning I only had about 50 minutes before he was going to uh, burn down the school. And in less than about 50 minutes, this Canadian college student was able to call the cops and get handcuffs on this British high schooler before he could do any harm. Complete strangers reach out through the net all the time to help other people. And yeah, sometimes that help is really lazy, like signing an e-petition or something. But sometimes it's not, Bob. I understand, but look, I have 600-some friends on Facebook, uh, a post here, a status update there, so superficial. And, and considering it's supposedly the apotheosis of connectivity, it's pretty weirdly disconnected. Sherry Turkle, a researcher at MIT, told me a heartbreaking anecdote. There was a story of a woman who, who posts on Facebook that she's going to commit suicide. And none of her friends did anything. On the one hand, that's a sort of horrible story. You know, what are these friends? Or they're not friends, they're the friended, which is very different. But, you know, on the other hand, when the hordes of journalists descended on these friended and said, you know, what were you doing not responding to her? These people said, you know, we don't know what we are to her. We didn't know what our responsibility was to her. I see people texting at funerals. I see people texting during faculty meetings. People bring their phones and take calls during dinner. We don't take a moment and realize how important it is to be with the people we're with. I don't buy it. What do you mean you don't buy it? This is an MIT professor telling us that the Internet is making us turn to inward. MIT, Brooke. MIT shmMIT. Honestly, the fact of the matter is, is that she and many people are deriving the idea that the internet makes us lonely from a single study. In 2006, they determined that between 1985 and 2004, the number of people that we confide in had been reduced from three people to two. Lee Rainey, who's director of the Pew Internet and American Life Project, told me that they basically just blamed it on the Internet. It was a pretty logical suspect to look at because the rise of the Internet and the rise of mobile phones in people's lives directly coincided with this major social change, the shrinkage of networks and the growth of isolation. But it was a guess. There was, there was no direct evidence. Okay, so, so he's saying correlation but no causation. Exactly. And in 2008, Pew revisited those findings. Lee Rainey gave us a few really delightful little insights into what happens when people use the net. And uh, one of them was that frequent internet users and those who have a blog are more likely to confide in someone who is of a different race. And those who share photos online are more likely to discuss important matters with people of another political party. So the internet is not the culprit in loneliness here. I get the, the Pew research and so forth, but all this never-ending superficial engagement doesn't strike everybody as enriching, more like enslaving. We're inundated with interactions, with devices, with media, with factoids. A writer named Nicholas Carr 
studied this problem and a few years ago made a very big splash with a magazine piece in the Atlantic called, Is Google Making Us Stupid? Carr says that we're losing something, namely our ability to pay deep attention to, to anything. And Carr thinks this is changing us as people and not for the better. There are indications, and I think this is part of probably a long-term trend, that we as a society are devaluing contemplative thought, deep reading, solitary thought. Uh, I personally think that the loss of this kind of linear, literary, attentive way of thinking is an enormous loss for us as individuals in terms of the loss of the richness of our intellectual lives and even of ourselves, and also a loss for culture. A loss for culture. Are you finished? We. Oui. Well, then let me C'est just... Fini. So I'm going to move on. Stop it. Okay. You should listen to Gary Small. He's the director of the Memory and Aging Center at UCLA. We did a study that we affectionately termed Your Brain on Google. And uh, what we did was to look at the brain in real time when it searches online. And we found that older people who had prior internet experience showed a much greater degree of brain activity than those who were naive to the internet search experience. The web savvy had twice as much brain activity in the areas that govern complex reasoning and decision making. And since these were all older Americans, this isn't generational. So let's assume that Nick Carr is right and the internet is rewiring us, dealing with all these information streams. I also talked to somebody named Catherine Hales. She's an educator. She wrote an important paper called Modes of Cognition. And she says that maybe dealing with all these streams simultaneously is, is simply adaptive behavior for a new world, that certainly we need the deep attention that Nicholas Carr so venerates. But we also need what she calls hyperattention, this hopping around attention, which the kids are so good at. They're much more adept at switching information streams very quickly and very flexibly, and those can be assets. So are you as worried then as Nick Carr is? No, because I think that it's possible to form bridges between hyperattention and deep attention. I think that you can have both. So you wouldn't shut down their computers and throw out their games? Oh, my goodness, no. <laughs> Bob, your thoughts? Okay, well, well, I think two things. The first thing I think is that you lined up more experts than I did, and that's not fair. <laughs> but beyond that, I mean, I hope you're not suggesting that teenagers are undergoing some sort of evolutionary adaptation like internet gills or something, you know, that online people somehow have become a different species because... Uh, it's a little too soon to be declaring that. Uh, no, I'm just suggesting that this new technology just makes us more of who we already are. If we're lazy, well, then we have all these opportunities to steal and cut and paste. And if we're hedgehogs, we can just burrow, burrow deep without end. And if you don't mind, I think I'll let Pew's Lee Rainey make the closing argument. The notion that there is virtual life and real life and never the twain shall meet is pretty quaint in this day and age, according to the people that we talk to. They blend these worlds so seamlessly that they actually can't report to us in many respects 
which part of their lives they are living with these virtual digital tools and which parts they are living in their voice communication and their face-to-face communication because they're all intertwined. I mean, in a final analysis, we don't really live in the world at all, Bob. We live in our heads. We just think we live in the world. That scares me. <laughs> I mean, maybe you live in your head, but I live in the world with, with mountains and, and rivers and many faraway lands. And, and in fact, it is to those very faraway lands that this debate heads next. That's right. Let's take on the internet and the world in the next segment. This is On the Media Live. This is On the Media Live. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. Let's take on the internet and the world in the next segment. But first, we get a song from our friends Dan and Dan. Hi, Brooke and Bob. Thanks for asking us on the show. I'm Dan. This is also Dan. Hiya. Um, We heard that you've been discussing the internet and uh, thought you might like to hear a song that we've written. Yeah, it's quite an angry song, isn't it? Well, that's because I'm quite an angry person. They want to take our rights away. They're only happy when we've paid. The time for words is over. This is war. They don't care less about our health. All they care about's their wealth. We're not standing for it anymore. Good for you, Dan. I mean, what are we going to do about it then? Go on a demo, maybe? No. Maybe make a donation somewhere? Are you joking? Do some volunteering, Dan, I mean. (laughs) I don't think so. Well, what are we going to do then? Oh. We're gonna join a Facebook group about it. We're gonna get all our friends to join it too. We're gonna write some messages about it. That's what we're gonna do. Click here if you've had enough. Like this if you don't like stuff. Click here if you disagree. Post this so your friends will see We hate cancer, drop the debt Banks are evil, free to bet Yes to fair trade, stop the war No to landmines, help the poor (laughs) We're gonna join a Facebook group about it We're gonna get all our friends to join it too We're gonna write some messages about it That's what we're gonna do we're We're gonna gonna join a facebook group about it we're gonna get all our friends to join it too we're gonna write some messages about it that's what we're gonna do that's what we're gonna do that's going to do. It has been an extraordinary two weeks.
This is undoubtedly a revolution for the 21st century. The revolution in Cairo was coming for some time. Its roots are in years of social discontent. And Their 18-day revolution began not with terrorism and tanks, but with Twitter and text. In a country without a free press or free speech, activists insist new media helped get the word out. Facebook and Twitter were kind of like the, the tool that got people organized. Facebook, which boasts 5 million users in Egypt, the most in the Arab but world. But the government has tried to choke off access by blocking cell phones and shutting down the internet. A new weapon in an old fight, helping Egyptians do battle against an oppressive regime. It was sheer jubilation in Tahrir after the news that President Mubarak had resigned. Out-organized and out-maneuvered by social media, by kids with keyboards. In short, online connectivity is changing the world. And uh, by the way, for, for this part of the show, I'm going to make the case for Internet Utopia. And I'll be arguing that while, of course, the Internet has changed the way people communicate and organize, the Internet didn't bring about revolution in Tunisia or Egypt. People did. You know, Bob, maybe you should acquaint yourself with the writings of Ethan Zuckerman, one of the world's experts in communication on the new media across the globe. He's a Harvard scholar, and I think that you'd stop imagining that pokes and tweets can foment a revolution. Really? I think it'd be quite an education for you. <laughs> well, that's funny, because I just happen to have Ethan Zuckerman right here. <laughs> you, you know... <laughs> you know, Brooke, I, I've been listening to you here, and I, I think you just completely misunderstand my work. And <laughs> I, I have to say, I have no idea how you found yourself hosting a syndicated public radio talk show. Oh, that is so Annie Hall. <laughs> uh, Ethan, Ethan, considering Thomas Paine and Robespierre and Lenin and the Ayatollah Khomeini uh, didn't have any, any Twitter accounts... How can we gauge the impact of the internet on Tunisia, on Egypt, and maybe even on Iran's uh, would-be green revolution? I don't think anyone reasonable is arguing that Facebook is the causal factor in a revolution like Tunisia. But when you actually look at the situation, there's a pretty good case that Facebook was pretty important. The protests that started in Tunisia started in a tiny little town, Sidi Bouzid, about 40,000 people. There's no media that was able to cover the protests. Tunisian media didn't cover it. Al Jazeera was blocked from coming there. And so the way that people were able to get that footage was via Facebook. Now that said, the reason people actually saw that footage was that Al Jazeera, which has a vaster reach than Facebook, was able to spread it out. And so what's going to happen over time is we're going to get off of this, Twitter did this, Facebook did that, Twitter can't do this, Facebook can't do that, and we'll have people actually trying to analyze what happened and how certain stories made it into the media dialogue and then led to mobilization of large numbers of people in the streets. On the subject of analysis, it's worth noting that this very afternoon, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton spoke in support of the internet as the ultimate empowerer of the individual. Jamie, could you play that piece of tape? We want to keep the internet open for the protester using social media to organize a march in Egypt, the college student emailing her family photos of her semester abroad, the lawyer in Vietnam blogging to expose corruption, the teenager in the United States who is bullied and finds words of support online, or the small business owner in Kenya using mobile banking to manage her profits. 
So tell me, Brooke, has the Secretary of State missed something? Yeah, no, I think she has missed something. I mean, later in the speech, she does refer to the darker purposes to which this new media could be put by authoritarian governments. But most important is she seems to fail to hold American companies to account. I'm reluctant to regard Facebook and Twitter as the uh, digital equivalents of Radio Free Europe or uh, you know, Voice of America because unlike Google, unlike Microsoft, and unlike Yahoo, they've refused to sign on to, what's it called? The Global, the Global, Global Network Initiative. Initiative. This is a group of industry-wide standards that they want all the big companies of the world to sign on to. Standards for freedom of speech and human rights. So uh, why didn't Facebook and Twitter sign on to that, Ethan? Well, let me first back up and say... I think the smartest part of Secretary Clinton's speech today was making the point that the internet isn't just a two-sided tool. It's not just a tool that you can use for creative purposes and dreadful purposes, as you were discussing in the first chunk of the show. It's inherently a mix between the two. The same tool that you use to stay in touch with old friends over Facebook turns out to be a great tool to organize a protest. And if you as a dictator try to block one function, you end up blocking the innocuous function as well, and you really don't want to do that. What the secretary didn't talk about today is the fact that almost all of these tools that we're praising are digital public spaces that are being run by corporations for profit within their own rules. And these companies aren't necessarily in the business of empowering revolutionaries. So Facebook, which is getting a ton of praise around uh, you know, the Egyptian protests and, and praise, including for me, in, in the role that it had bringing the Tunisia story to light, Facebook actually has a real problem uh, with activist users. Activists often go onto Facebook, they start groups, and they do so under a pseudonym because they're scared of getting arrested. Facebook has this very, very strict real name policy. And so Wael Ghanim, this organizer who everybody has been praising and is now emerging as a major opposition figure in Egypt, lost his Facebook group because he signed up under a pseudonym. So people are now asking companies like Facebook, like Twitter, to step up and take these human rights issues seriously. And there's a group, Global Network Initiative, that is trying to get people to agree on common standards of how do you deal with human rights issues within these platforms. The trick is human rights aren't necessarily great business. If you're trying to get traction for Facebook in, say, Vietnam, announcing that Facebook is the best platform on which to hold your revolution probably isn't going to go over real well with the government. When did you become a hostile witness? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and the fact is, is that uh, it is, it's not just corporations. Governments, as we've said, can use the same social media to track dissidents, to lurk in chat rooms, to spread disinformation, even to crowdsource the uh, identities of dissidents. Listen to this tape from blogger Yevgeny Morozov, author of The Net Delusion. He has a great accent. Well, in Iran, what we saw after the protests of 2009, the government actually went on many social media sites and they began collecting information about people who were tweeting, people who were posting information to Facebook. They even went to sites like Flickr and sites like YouTube and they collected photos and videos. There was one uh, government-run news site which actually published photos uh, that they found online, mostly on Flickr, and they circled the faces of people that they couldn't recognize in red, asking public 
to identify whoever they could recognize. So it's a very interesting use of crowdsourcing. Look, the defense stipulates that some American companies like Facebook and Google and Yahoo and others, Twitter, may have some things to answer for. And, and obviously, repressive governments have all the same access to these tools that freedom-loving peoples do, uh, including this particularly nefarious idea of crowdsourcing the identification of protesters. But revolutions are, by definition, the work of crowds, and crowds can do a lot more than snitch on one another. Uh, Ethan, tell me about crowdsourcing not for evil, but for good. Well, first, when we look at Iran, let's keep in mind that we're dealing with one of the most repressive governments in the world. And the notion of going out and, say, taking photos of protesters and then sitting down in the State Security Bureau and identifying them is, is hardly a new technique. Uh, the idea that you put it on the web and you try to crowdsource it is very sexy. Uh, but essentially what you see with these tools is... Very what are, Stasi, very sexy. Very sexy, very Stasi. You can, <laughs> you can form your own images there. Um, but these technologies, again, they're double-sided, and you can use them for a lot of different purposes. In Kenya, in the wake of uh, really terrible, violent protests that swept the country after the disputed 2007 elections, you saw a group of people get together and build a platform called Ushahidi. And the idea was there was so much going on in Kenya, the media couldn't cover it, you simply couldn't witness both the bad things, the devastation of what was going on, and the good things, people taking in people of another tribe, sheltering them from violence, so on and so forth. These four programmers put together a platform called Ushahidi, which allowed anybody with a mobile phone to take a photo or send a text message and either report something bad that had happened or something that good that had happened and put it together on a map. That form of crowd reporting has been so powerful. It's now been used all over the world uh, for things like tracking the Russian fires this past summer or even tracking snowstorms in Washington, D.C. Uh, so you can use these technologies for almost whatever purpose you turn them to. It shouldn't be a surprise that the Iranian government is putting them towards a miserable purpose, but it doesn't have to be that way. Before I turn the witness back over to you, you mentioned earlier the notion of the state being stuck in what I think is called the dictator's dilemma, that in order to repress the public by shutting off the internet, they would have to simultaneously close off the corridors for uh, running an economy, for example. Can you talk about that particularly uh, as it played out in Egypt? So the dictator's dilemma basically stipulates that if you run a repressive government, the last thing you want is a communications medium that people can use to organize themselves. So you really don't want SMS on mobile phones because we know from the Philippines that people use it to organize and get people out to a public square. You really don't want Facebook. You don't want any of these tools that people could use to mobilize a mass of people. The problem is if you turn these tools off, you crash your economy because these tools are dual use. And it's very, very hard for a government to withdraw itself from the internet entirely um, without suffering severe economic consequences. One of the things that I've been advising uh, to activists for years is to try to use these tools for completely trivial purposes as well as for serious purposes. And it's something that I've called the cute cat theory, which is to say that it's a real expensive thing for governments to shut down Facebook if people are using it mostly to share cute pictures of cats. If they're only using it for political revolution, then it's actually pretty easy for a dictator to shut it down. But anything that is a dual-use technology, whether it's dual-use in keeping your economy running or dual-use in allowing people to have sort of silly and fun uses for it, 
that's a much harder technology to take offline in the case of an activist movement. But can't the governments track how you're using it? I mean, if all your friends are investment bankers, maybe they'd leave you alone. And if all your friends are uh, human rights activists and you read nothing but uh, critical assessments of the authoritarian government, they're going to find out. So they can be quite selective, so they can maintain the financial parts, the parts that fuel the economy, and crush the other parts. So surveillance is a really tough topic. Uh, and the problem with studying surveillance, which we try to do at the, at the Berkman Center where I'm based, is that if it's done well, you're never going to be able to see it. So what you have to sort of study is what surveillance potentially could be. And it's very hard to imagine, even in a country like China that throws an enormous amount of resources at surveilling the web, to believe that you could surveil everybody. So what we tend to assume is that the surveillance tends to focus much more on known activist types. The sort of profiling that you're talking about sounds really spooky. Uh, but when you think about it and you look at sort of what ads you're targeted on the internet, they generally don't get my gender right, never mind whether or not I'm trying to overthrow the government or not. So at this stage of the game, I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to worry about algorithmic targeting. Now, I might worry, on the other hand, if I'm a known dissident in Bahrain right now, where the government is, in fact, very actively cracking down on people who are using services to stream from the protests in Pearl Circle and stream from their mobile phones onto a live video site. We know that they're targeting individuals and shutting them down. So surveillance is real. It just may not be as broad as we imagine it to okay, be. Okay, but blocking access is very broad. We decided to go on this uh, site that tells you which websites are blocked in China at any point, and we uh, hit dalailama.org, figuring that one would be blocked. And Sure enough, it was. And then, of course, we decided to search the very anti-authoritarian radio program on the media, assuming that would be blocked in China as well. Oh, oh well, it wasn't blocked. That was disappointing. <laughs> but anyway. I haven't been so upset since I wasn't on Nixon's enemies list. <laughs> it looks like we have to wrap this up, Ethan. So do you see yourself as an internet utopian when it comes to global affairs? I don't much care for the terms of the debate. Um, Thank you nice very much, you Ethan Zuckerman. <laughs> it could be dystopian. It could be utopian. The point isn't whether it's one thing or another. We only really invented the consumer internet that we're all talking about in the last 15 or 20 years. There are people in this room who probably were involved with inventing it very early on. We've had less than two decades to wire this thing to be the way it is. The question we should be asking is how to make it less dystopian and more utopian. That's a worthwhile question. Okay, so just a quick follow-up, 30 seconds. How do we do that? <laughs> <laughs> Have me back in a year or two. <laughs> Ethan Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining us. Next up, the future and how a supercomputer named Watson may be the next Jeopardy champion. This is On the Media, live. And that's Frank Kimbrough playing. Support for On the Media comes from the George Lucas Educational Foundation, creator of Edutopia, a source for what works in education. Learn more at edutopia.org. The Kauffman Foundation, working to advance innovations in education and entrepreneurial success. Learn more at kauffman.org. And the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people. Online at wtgrantfoundation.org. This is NPR. 
This is On the Media, recorded live on Tuesday, February 15th. In this segment, we talk about the future. Brooke, now that we are in the future, how do you feel? I feel enhanced and augmented. I have access to so much information in all of its breadth and depth, and I am connected with more than a million friends, both on Earth and the Moon. Also, Huffington Post goes directly to my brain. Wait, let me Google you. In 2014, Gawker called you a slut. There is a picture of you, too. From 2016. You look drunk. I wasn't drunk. That picture was taken the day a hacker got all the world's passwords and drained my bank account. That was a bad year. In August I beat Deep Blue in chess, but in September, Watson beat me in basketball and ran off with my wife. Watson is smarter than you. He also has an excellent jump shot and a better radio voice. I do not care for the future. I like the future. My only complaint is my iPhone is still dropping calls. This is On the Media Live. I'm Brooke Gladstone. And I'm Bob Garfield. The future is unknown. The unknown is scary. Therefore, futuristic fiction, science fiction, is generally terrifying. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. All right, listen. The Terminator's an infiltration unit. Part man, part machine. Underneath, it's a hyper-alloy combat chassis. Very tough. What is the Matrix? Control. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world. Built to keep us under control in order to change a human being into this. Awesome. (laughs) In general, science fiction offers us two distinct trends for the future and how we'll interact with it. One is that we'll be integrated into the machine. I'll be a partly hyper-alloy combat chassis. With a heart of gold. (laughs) Let's call that the Terminator track. All right. I'll take the other track, my track, uh, when computer intelligence, artificial intelligence, surpasses human intelligence. Computers are improving at an exponential rate, but they still trip over uh, even one of the simplest human tricks, our ability to talk to each other. So, like, when I say edited by Brooke. There's meaning there that a computer just can't understand, right? Actually, I don't think anybody understands that. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, computers can't understand puns, metaphors, wordplay, or sarcasm, much less pregnant pauses. That kind of semantic understanding has been a holy grail for computer engineers. Computers are used to unambiguous things. Human language, completely the opposite. Last night, I shot an elephant in my pajamas. How it got in my pajamas, I'll never know. We know what the pajamas are modifying, but the computer, it's just as likely that the elephant's wearing pajamas. That's where computers struggle dramatically, and that's where we want to make them better. And it's finally happening, Brooke. This week, pretty much right this minute, actually, on Jeopardy, an IBM computer called Watson is taking on human opponents. Olympic oddities for 600. 
1976 entrant in the modern this was kicked out for wiring his epee to score points without touching his foe. Watson. What is pentathlon? Yes. Name the decade for 600. Klaus Barbie is sentenced to life in prison, and DNA is first used to convict a criminal. Ken. I don't know. What is the 1980s? Yes, that's it. Uh, Olympic oddities for 1,000. It was the anatomical oddity of U.S. gymnast George Iser who won a gold medal on the parallel bars in 1904. Watson? What is leg? No. Brad? What is he's missing a leg? Yeah, wow. <laughs> they make Alex Trebek look so human. <laughs> and he's even condescending to robots. <laughs> So if, if that's the holy grail, real language, how does he do it? Well, for, uh, for starters, Watson knows a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff. Not because he's connected to the internet. He isn't. He, she, it, it's only got what's been fed into it. Just like his human competitors, engineers have entered all kinds of information. They've just scanned it in with 2,500 processor cores, whatever they are, humming along uh, at up to 33 billion operations a second. So there's that. But Clive Thompson, the technology journalist OTM so depends on, says that shoveling info into Watson is really just the beginning. Here's a way of thinking about it. You could take, say, an article I wrote for the New York Times, and you could input that into Watson. And by the time Watson has finished analyzing it and adding layers of meaning to help it figure out what that thing stands for and how to match it to other documents to find similarity between a question that you might ask Watson, by the time it's done with all that, there will be 10 times as much data stacked on top of that story as the original story is in length. So if you were to look inside Watson's brain, only 10% of it is the enormous amount of raw text that they have fed into Watson. The other 90% is stuff that Watson has added on top of it, saying, you know, what are the main keywords in this article? You know, to help figure out the meaning. You know, how statistically similar is it to all the other things I know? So it does a lot of meta-thinking on top of that document. Okay, but I still don't quite understand how Watson thinks. I mean, Watson saw this clue. This hat is elementary, my dear Watson, and came up with what is a deer stalker hat? Mm -hmm. And how did he do that? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's an excellent question. You don't know, do you? I, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> no, but I do know, I do know what Watson reminds me of. Computer, last message received and recorded from Captain Kirk. In place. Run it through analyzer. Question, is it or is it not the captain's voice? A voice duplicator? 98% probability. Well, they've got them, Doctor. I know they're trying to get us. Can we just watch this for a while? <laughs> <laughs> that ridiculous clip from like 1966 foreshadows what computer scientists call the semantic web. Clive says that the Star Trek computer was uh, kind of a proto-Watson. And in some respects, that is the paradigm that the IBM guys started with. They actually were sitting around thinking, when are we going to get to the Star Trek point? When are we get to the point where we can simply just ask the computer a question in regular English and, and have the computer answer it? Now, again, Watson happens not to be connected online, 
but his software is a step toward uh, the so-called semantic web, the bridge between the Google that searches for keywords and a computer that, that can just talk to us and really understand us. That is a huge step on the path towards true artificial intelligence. And so if Watson wins Jeopardy, we're getting artificial intelligence. What happens when Watson becomes conscious, when it becomes willful, when it becomes how? <laughs> how is a d <laughs> <laughs> Watson has no volition, evil or otherwise. It's, it's just a, a rather remarkably evolved tool. Think of Deep Blue. That was the computer that IBM finished 14 years ago to challenge a grandmaster in chess, remember? Deep Blue beat Garry Kasparov, but it did not, you know, go on to refuse to open the pod bay doors. <laughs> what it did do was show Kasparov how to get better at chess. He, in fact, helped stage a second competition in which man and ordinary personal computer teamed up against the supercomputer Deep Blue. Here's Clive. You could get a grandmaster with a cheap chess program and they could be a better chess player than Deep Blue. In fact, it even got weirder than that because at the end of the first advanced chess competition, the winning team wasn't even a grandmaster. It was a comparative amateur at chess. So maybe the analogy isn't how. Maybe the analogy is like the bionic man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The future of computers and humans and intelligence isn't going to be Hal. It's going to be Steve Austin, you know, the bionic man, the, the guy whose intelligent assistance from machinery makes him more powerful than the average person. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man better, stronger, Faster. Better, stronger, faster, and doggone it, people like him. <laughs> you know, Bob, we, we already have some of this technology. I mean, right now you can hold up your iPhone if you have the right app to any building or monument or product and find out everything you need to know through the eyes of the Internet. They call it Google Eyes, and you can get them. A few years down the line... We could have the Terminator's eyes. The contact lenses that we have at the moment are very rudimentary. Uh, basically what we have is contact lenses that have uh, small antennas and small radios integrated into their structure. The radio waves convert some of it to usable energy for the circuitry, and uh, very recently we've been able to turn on very, very basic text on the contact lens. That's Babak Parviz. He's an associate professor of bio-nanotechnology and nanofabrication at the University of Washington. Here's what I asked him. Would you like to be able to access through your eyes face recognition technology and Google searches and so forth so that somebody standing next to you on the subway becomes fully knowable? I think that will definitely happen. You have your normal vision, but superimposed on that, you have some more data. Could be a search result or result of a face recognition program or a GPS that is telling you where, where to go. Can I go back to dystopia for a second? <laughs> that's, that's cool. But being able to see what we want to see superimposed onto the actual world, uh, doesn't that allow us to filter out what we dislike? 
like in my case, Glenn Beck and the New York Yankees. Do we really want to put on high-tech blinders? High-tech blinders worried me too. So I asked Jame Cassio about it. He works at the Institute for the Future. You're walking down the street and you see somebody who supports a position you don't like and you've adjusted your augmented reality glasses so that a little black dot covers up their face? Right. You don't want to make them invisible, which eventually you might be able to have technology that could do that because you don't want to run into them, of course. But you want to have some way of identifying this is someone whose political or social positions I find abhorrent, and I don't want to accidentally run into them and engage them in conversation. As with every technology we develop, there are inevitably negative, surprising consequences that emerge alongside the broad social benefits. Mm -hmm. So... Contact lenses don't obliterate people. People obliterate people. (laughs) Well, when you put it that way, uh, it seems kind of trite. But I will fall back on my general theory that all this technology makes us only more of what we were going to be anyway. And, And really, contact lenses like this are just a toy compared to what inventor and futurist Ray Kurzweil thinks we have in store. In this clip from this film about Kurzweil, Transcendent Man, he remembers that in 1965, the computer at MIT took up a large part of the building, and look how far we've come. Speak to young people, teenagers, and even in their lifetimes, they can see how much more quickly technology moves today than it did five years ago. The nature of technological progress is exponential. If I count linearly, 30 steps, one, two, three, four, five, I get to 30. If I count exponentially, two, four, eight, 16, 30 steps later, I'm at a billion. It makes a dramatic difference. So we went from a building to something that fits in your pocket in 40 years, and the next 25 years will go from something that fits in your pocket to something that's the size of a blood cell. He believes in a concept he calls the singularity, where technological progress becomes so rapid it will erase the lines between AI, human consciousness, biology, and technology. We'll be omniscient and immortal. And he already has a hard date for when this will occur, the singularity. He says it will happen in 2042. That's right, Bob. When I'm 65 and you're 92, we'll hit the next (laughs) evolutionary landmark together. And human intelligence will multiply a billion-fold. People will no longer surf the web. They will be the web. The Internet are us, eh? Uh, Maybe. On the other hand, Jaron Lanier, one of the pioneers of virtual reality, says that singularity is a pipe dream. The singularity is a mass fantasy of certain kinds of nerdy people that allows them to not take responsibility and to pretend that technology is running the show so that they can just be along for the ride. The obvious parallel to draw is to certain religious ideas that the world's going to end and that some people that are here today are just sort of obsolete. And I'm thinking of the idea of the rapture that you find in the American evangelical community, this notion that There's going to be this event where some people disappear and the ones who are left are the ones who didn't get it or something. So it's entirely based on faith. Brooke, I'm going to stop right here. Uh, It seems to me that this gets to the whole point of tonight's discussion. Because I know Kurzweil is fine with uh, the rapture comparison. He believes the desire to transcend our earthly selves is entirely human. It's just that he thinks it's no pipe dream. He believes that we'll have the technology. 
Right, and Lanier doesn't condemn technology's march. He just says that we need to be conscious of the implications every step of the way. He says that being human is still such a profound mystery that we shouldn't be rushing off into the new technology before we plumb that mystery. And Kurzweil says that humanity is a moving target, not a problem to be solved, but a process that we need to embrace. And Lanier says <laughs> when we go online, we compromise our full humanity and we trim ourselves to fit the narrow categories of Facebook or the character constraints of Twitter. But Kurzweil says that all those limitations will be erased with technology's exponential growth. We may be bionic. We may navigate a virtual world hand in hand with artificial intelligence, but we will still, always will, have responsibility to other human beings. So, as we speak, Watson may be winning tonight's competition. Computers are gradually getting to be more like us. I guess it's up to us to decide whether or not that'll actually be an improvement. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for mulling it over with us. That's it for this week's show on the media. It was produced by Jamie York, Mike Volo, Nazanin Rafsanjani, Alex Goldman, PJ Vogt, and Sara Abdurrahman, with more help from Andrew Parsons, Carlin Gallietti, Ricardo Fernandez, Eric Kamins, Nikki Johnson, and Amy Pearl. And our show was edited by Brooke. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were John Delore and Dylan Keefe. Katya Rogers is our senior producer. Ellen Horn is WNYC's senior director of national programs. Bassist composer Ben Allison wrote our theme. You can listen to the program and find transcripts at onthemedia.org. You can also post comments there. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, and you can email us at onthemedia at wnyc.org. On the Media is produced by WNYC and distributed by NPR. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Wait, let me check the script. And I'm Bob Garfield. <laughs> Thank you very much. Support for On the Media comes from the Ford Foundation, the Jane Marcher Foundation, the Overbrook Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. This is NPR. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.